At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for drug science. Hello, I'm David Nutt and uh, welcome again to a drug science podcast. So this is a rather different one to previously because uh, here it's going to be more of a question and answer session between me and uh, Joe Neal, who I'll uh, introduce to you in a minute. The questions have all come in from the audience we had uh, last week when we launched the Medical Psychedelics Working Group. And the reason Joe is here is because she is chair of that group. Joe is a very eminent uh, scientist, pharmacologist, past president of the British Association of Psychopharmacology. And uh, having left that, she decided she wanted a greater challenge. And so she's now joined Drug Science and she chairs our psychedelic working group. So welcome, Joe. Thank you very much, David. I must say it's a real pleasure to be here. I've been listening to the podcast while I've been gardening in lockdown and it's been, they've been absolutely fantastic. I think, I think the audience would be interested to know a, a bit about your background. I mean, are you a pharmacist? Is that right? Pretty much. In all my academic career, I've been in the School of Pharmacy, but I'm a pharmacologist. Uh-huh. And I've worked in drug discovery for psychiatry, for new medicines, for uh-huh. all of my career, one way or another. Really, even before starting my PhD. So I did my degree in pharmacology at Bath University, and we do a, a placement year. One of the great things that Bath does. And in fact, it's lovely now because in my lab, we take placement students from Bath. So it's like a sort of full circle. <laughs> but I went to work in industry um, in France for Merrill Dow and worked with some amazing scientists. And actually, the team was led by John Fozard. I don't know if you remember him. So this is a, a man who knows a little bit about serotonin <laughs> So my life started out all about serotonin. I got a good training in behavioural pharmacology from Mark Tricklebank when I was Mm -hmm. uh, at Merrill Dye. So then on to um, PhD in psychology. Eating, was that eating disorder? That was all eating. Having worked in industry for a year, I went to work for Merck, Sharp and Dome, and started working on glutamate there, actually, which was great fun. So it's been serotonin and glutamate. And of course, I've ended up with Bill Deacon, who is a world expert on both these neurotransmitters. At, That's uh, in Manchester, Manchester. now. Yeah. That's in Manchester now. So I then, PhD, then went to do a postdoc, Leeds, and that was in ethology. So learned a lot about really studying animal behaviour in a lot of detail and taking an ethological approach. So that's really the David Attenborough approach, studying animals in their natural mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. Then moved to Bradford, worked for Brenda Costell and worked on drug addiction and alcohol addiction. And I was very lucky. I was funded by Glaxo and they were, had a very relaxed attitude to the postdoc. And I was allowed to really do what I wanted for three years, which was a great uh, privilege. And I was really focused on animal models of sort of craving and wanting and le- mm-hmm. liking for drugs. 
Oh, so that's where you began to get interested in addiction. Yeah, and I was fairly clear that's what I wanted to do, but I could not get funding to do that research. It was very, very difficult. It's still, I mean, I guess you've struggled with this. Huge problem, huge problem. Virtually no funding for addiction research in Britain now. So switched to schizophrenia and massive unmet clinical need with cognition in schizophrenia and set up a very small contact research organisation called Be Neuro and have been working at that really ever since alongside teaching and and doing all the other things that academics do. Oh, right. So you're a a businesswoman as well as an academic. Yes, in a very small, (laughs) small way. So I come to Manchester then, and it's a huge operation. It's so much bigger than Bradford. And there's some special things about Manchester that really, I think, have led me to be so committed to psychedelic medicine. So one of these is social responsibility is our third core goal. And that's all about you know, making the world a better place. And I ended up judging the research you know, outputs for this. Uh, they have a, a, an award ceremony every year and all, you know, lots of academics try and get this award. That led me to see the, you know, the incredible work that academics can do to make the world a much better place and giving away software for free, you know, monitoring water output, saving energy. Mm-hmm. And Manchester is such an enormous university. There's, there's all sorts of expertise. So that was one thing. And it started to change my outlook, I think, on the work and, and the, what an academic really should be trying to do. I sort of jumped ahead. Driving home from work one Friday evening, I turned on the radio and Eddie Mayer was interviewing Neil Woods former undercover Uh cop. There's something about the way he speaks to people. He really resonates. And he's talking about the need for drug law reform. And that struck such a chord that I thought, this guy's absolutely right. You know, I have to do more for drug law reform. And I also, a similar time, met a combat veteran, a former Mm -hmm. combat veteran, a friend of my daughter's who had suffered very, very, a young guy, very bad trauma after his experiences in Afghanistan and used psychedelics to heal his trauma. I came to realise the way we discover drugs for psychiatry, it's terribly slow. I've been doing this for 30 years. I've seen some amazing molecules come and go, but actually we've not made the lives of patients better. And I think you get to a certain age, a certain Mm -hmm. stage in your career, where you look back on on what you've achieved and you really have to change the way you do things. So I sort of made a decision to spend the rest of my career working to enable people to get psychedelic medicine and came to you. (laughs) Well, we're very grateful you did. (laughs) I was very honoured to be invited to join Drug Science And you were promoted very rapidly to become chair of this new group. Yes, I was. Yes, which was <laughs> right place at the right time, I think. I'm yes, very, very fortunate. absolutely. You have the most amazing team at Drug Science. There is no doubt about that. It's a privilege to be part of it, isn't it? Just so for the, the people who weren't able to listen into the uh, the launch of the working group, do you want to just say a few words about how, what the working group is and how it's how it's been constructed and how you see it yeah. developing? Yeah, so I think we've got a lot of work to do. I would say the ultimate aim is to enable patients like like that combat veteran mm. to access 
medical psychedelics safely in the clinical setting. It's absolutely shameful that we cannot treat people mm. in this country and in the right way. And I heard you interview the chap who'd been on the depression trial, one of the psilocybin yes. depression mm. trials that you ran. And many people need more than one or two doses and within the constraints of the trial, you can't give that to them. And so, so I would say the chief aim then is to enable patients to, to access medical psychedelics. But of course... It's not legal as a medicine yet. It's still in schedule one of the misuse of drugs regulations. And I don't want to go on and on about that, but it is, uh, in spite of what the Home Office say, the Home Office are right in that you can, you can get a licence to do this research, but they do not explain how incredibly difficult it is to do this. Mm. We're talking delays of up to a year are fairly common, six months to mm. a year. Mm. We've done a qualitative analysis interviewing scientists up and down the country about this. £3,000 to get the licence is the minimum because mm. you have to have all this special locked alarm safes. You have to train personnel to help you dispose of the drugs. Yeah. The bureaucracy is tortuous there's a lot of stigma the higher-ups don't really like you doing schedule one work and they won't pay so lots of people i spoke to especially animal researchers like myself will not do this work they haven't got a spare three thousand pounds in the research budget they, they won't wait a year they just they just won't do it so i talked to a lot of people who can't do this work it's shameful and that's really one of the most frustrating aspects of the current situation yeah i mean clearly the fact that People who need the therapy, patients who, or individuals who would, value, who would get benefit from the therapy, they're there. You know, that, the fact that they're not getting it is is a major issue. But, but there's just such a lot of need for what we would call translational research for for preclinical researchers to try to work out what what the mechanisms are to and to improve on potentially improve on the therapeutic benefits. But also, it's a fantastically interesting scientific question. You know. Why do these drugs help people's minds kind of reset in a, in a way which frees them from depression, frees them from PTSD? It's a complete revolution, isn't it? Of course, you know, these drugs have been used for thousands of years by indigenous populations mm. who, who knew, but not the mechanisms. Mm. Uh, and we badly need to understand that so much better. This is such an exciting medical model. I mean, a lot of people talk to me now at the university, students about their mm. experience with psychedelic drugs. And everybody describes it as one of the most profound experiences of their life. And this veteran described it as a spiritual experience. Mm. Mm. And he's not a religious chap. And the other mm. thing about the veterans is they don't um, have any experience with illegal drugs. You know, it's completely yes, taboo in the military. Course. Yeah. That's actually one of the issues, isn't it, for them? It, I mean, one of the podcasts I did with a couple of American vets, and they say that it's a real tough thing. An American vet who's working in the public service in America, if they were to go and get the therapy they need, because it's illegal, they could lose their job and their livelihood, which is a sort of, kind of the worst position to be in when you know that there may be therapy out there, but you're not allowed to access it because it's illegal. Absolutely, absolutely. And I was horrified. I think things are maybe slightly different, slightly better support-wise for, for veterans from the NHS. But I was horrified that he didn't get, you know, an awful lot of support from the military no. once he'd left in terms of the training that he'd received as a, as a medic. You know, not a trained medic, but he didn't really get that. So it's very difficult then getting work. So then you get a public sector job. And, and you're, you know, they'll sack you if, if they find you're 
using this medicine. It's dreadful. So just to go back then to the medical psychedelics working group, what will we achieve? Of course, very much building on the success, the fabulous success of the medical cannabis um, working group. So developing educational material and, of course, the psilocybin slide decks are, are on the website available to use, MDMA, and developing research materials. And we'll be talking about this at the committee meeting on um, on Thursday. And, of course, you have a fantastic researcher, Anne Schlag, in charge of that. And she has produced at least five outputs this year for medical cannabis already. So you can see the, the speed and the rate at which these outputs will come out. Yeah, I think it's important to, to uh, for the, the listeners to understand that certainly my own particular impetus in this field has been to try to provide enough science to kind of eventually break through the stigma and the barriers so, so that when people say we don't know enough, we say, oh, yes, we do. You don't have to pretend we've got to keep the law as it is because we don't know any better. And we've done that with hopefully with, well, with cannabis. And that's what one of the things we're planning to do with psychedelics. Dispel the myth that these are addictive drugs. When, if anything, they're anti-addictive drugs. I mean, the evidence coming out on addiction is quite astonishing, isn't it? It's fabulous. And, what you know, people come to me with alcohol problems. Where do you go if you don't go to AA? You know, it's yeah, terrible. Precisely, yes. Let's start off with some of the questions. So here's what this is a particularly pertinent one for you as a professor from Aaron McConville. He says, is there any way for other academics who are not necessarily in fields such as psychology or pharmacology to get involved, contribute, if so, how? Any, any thoughts as to how we could encourage Aaron to, uh, to, to help us? Absolutely. I think there are probably most disciplines could get involved in this in some way or another. But, you know, I talked about the drug policy people at Manchester. So the criminologists have a mm-hmm. massively important role to play in all this. Uh, Judith Aldridge, is, uh, she's a criminologist. She's an expert on the drug markets uh, and really interesting information about the Russian drug markets last time I was talking to her. Fiona Misham, co-founder of The Loop, she's a criminologist. My good friend James Morgan from London Met University, he's a criminologist and his research is um, heroin dealers. You know, so I I just think criminology, law, history. What about the history of of psychedelic medicine? The history and the anti-history. Well, yes. What about the stigmatisation and the press and, you know, the last 50 years? And the other thing, um, we're 50 years, aren't we, next year? since the Misuse of Drugs Act was passed in 1971. The world is a completely different place now. So, you know, even short-term history, I think there's an awful lot. You know, I think most people, most disciplines have something to contribute. Drugs affect everything. And, you know, psychedelic drugs and and MDMA, I mean, they've been hugely influential in many, many aspects of sort of social change. And so it would be hard to think of a branch of academia that you couldn't have some involvement in even astrophysics you can sometimes get there with dmt can't you yeah <laughs> yes, so I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> well that's chloe listening to chloe's uh and doing dmt in a scanner chloe sakal's podcast is, is brilliant for, yeah. for the listeners so if you haven't listened to the podcast uh, you've got a lot of catching up to do um now, here's the sort of, again, a similar kind of theme, but from Nadia Ford. She says, how can the public help change attitudes towards psychedelics and help support this work? Do you know what? I think it is all down to the public. I think there is so much you can do. You have social media at your disposal. 
write to your MP, talk to your MP. Now, Neil Woods, talking of him today, has just tweeted a letter. So after the interview yesterday, he's come up with a letter for your MP to write to them to ask them to help reschedule Silas Ivan. And, and, you know, MPs absolutely love to hear from their constituents. That's their their role. And that's, actually, as I've learned from Craig, he says, if you're going to talk to an MP, you need to have something to ask them for. That's yes. what they expect you to do, which, you know, was, was something I hadn't really understood. And I think it's just spreading the message and talking to your parents and your grandparents and your brothers and sisters and anybody you meet on a train about psychedelics. And eventually we will dispel all the myths. It was interesting. I gave a talk on this. There's some hardcore neuroscience, neuroscientists at Manchester Union. Mm-hmm. I gave a talk on this at Christmas in the pub afterwards. One guy was merrily telling me about his um, mm-hmm. his psychedelic experiences. Yes, as they which do. Which is great, <laughs> as they do. And I just love, I could listen to that forever. And another chap was saying, you cannot bring this in as a medicine. It's just, you can't because it's, they're so dangerous. Oh. So, and this is a neuroscientist and somebody who should know better. So I was able to explain to him how wrong he is. He loved that. But, you know, Nadia, this is all down to you. And Neil Wood said, this is a movement for drug law reform, psychedelic medicine. It's really up to you, I think. We can't do it all as scientists, can we? No, no, but uh, and it's but it's good that there are interested members of the public who who uh, who want to support us, and, and I think the great thing again is that this, the, our working group and scientists researching this, we give confidence to the public that they can speak without being kind of vilified or humiliated, because you know they can speak. The more and more evidence, more and more research is going out there that they can share and, and it's it's no longer an opinion that they have they're actually promoting facts absolutely you know and i'd say nadia read michael pollan's book read your book drugs without the hot air um look at the drug science website listen to the podcast so you are informed and well educated and you can then inform other people i think it's a sort of snowball effect yes absolutely it'll you know we'll slowly gather momentum and then hopefully wipe out the, the misuse of drugs act as we cr- We roll through Parliament, yeah. We'll get back to the interview in just a second. I just want to thank all the drug science community members for your continued support. Without you, the dissemination of information like this would not be possible. Drug science is, and always will be, independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. But by becoming a drug science community member, you'll be helping us bring about change. You'll also receive access to exclusive events and will be able to attend all drug science events for free. To see how to become a community member, click on the link in the show notes. Now, where were we? Let's get back to the show. So here's a question, I guess, a question more for me probably. Do you think general general psychiatric practice is ready for psychedelics to become a medicine? Um, I'll, I'll kick this one off, but feel free to chip in if you want, Joe. So uh, I answer this question by giving a, uh, an anecdote. When I, A couple of years ago, I was asked to give a talk at the Royal College of Psychiatrists on psychedelic, putting psychedelics back into psychiatry. And it was wonderful. It was, you know, it was about 350 people in the new building. You know, it was a, a phenomenal turnout. And at the end, uh, it was clear to me that there was th- the room polarised into three separate groups of people. There were people there older than me who'd actually retired from psychiatry, but who'd been around when psychedelics were being used back in the 60s. He stood up and they kind of applauded me for 
saying what they've known for 50 years, <laughs> that there is real utility in this. And then there was a sort of large chunk of general psychiatrists in the middle who were still thinking, wow, really, is this true? Or, you know, have I misunderstood something? I mean, maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe, uh, maybe I've been too negative, but oh, maybe not. Maybe it's too difficult. And then the, the, the trainees who were, you know, were universally so supportive. Because one of the big problems with psychiatry is we haven't had a lot of innovation, as you pointed out in your introduction. And I think general psychiatry is desperate for something new. And the wonderful thing about psychedelics is that it brings together psychopharmacology and psychotherapy in a way which is absolutely unique in the, in the history of, of psychiatry. So I think young psychiatrists are very, very ready, and I think they will probably encourage their, their older mentors to, to, to realise that this is actually something to be embraced rather than feared. I mean, I, I talked to a psychiatrist in um, Newcastle who said to me, Joe, we've hit a brick wall. I've some patients I can't treat. I mean, how frustrating and sad is that to, to have people, treatment-resistant depression, trauma, uh, mm. anorexia, OCD, so many disorders where you just cannot really, you don't have enough ammunition to treat people, if, if that's probably not a very mm. good way of saying it, but you don't have enough in your your medicine cabinet to, to really help people. And we all know psychotherapy is very valuable, but can be quite slow. And I, I love that point about it bringing psychiatry and psychotherapy together. And I just think that's, that's absolutely wonderful. And we need innovation. And this is innovation that I suppose has always been around. But now we're, you know, your imaging work, we're in a much better position to have a, a good understanding of how these medicines are working still a lot to to learn from that and I talked yesterday um I'd done the interview and talked to a um I would say a psychiatrist I know with a very a conservative with a small c mm. and he whatsapped me and said this is brilliant this is exactly what we need and he'd been very reticent before that so I think the message to that middle ground in, mm -hmm. in psychiatry mm. that you talked about and being quite nervous about it I think we're getting through to them as well. And it's it's actually very good that people like you who are coming in as sort of educated outsiders, but with a strong scientific background, are saying, well, I've, I've looked at the literature, I've, I've discovered what's going on. I, as a scientist, I think this makes sense. And that's much more reassuring than people who are inside, like me, saying, you know, who kind of part of the process being very positive, because we would be, wouldn't we? You know, whereas, you know, you've got no reason to be. You're, you're just approaching it because from what you've learned and what you've seen about it yes and it's nice to be coming in a little bit later actually to not have been involved for the whole time um and it's sort of fresh mm. eyes on it i think no absolutely and that was one of the reasons we were keen that you took on the role as chair because i think if i was to do it people would just say well you know he you know he, he, how can you trust him you know he's gonna he's just promoting his own research whereas you're you know you're a truly yeah. independent scientist which you are yeah. So we've got a question from Mr. Anonymous or Ms. Anonymous saying, how have places like Denver and Oakland managed to decriminalise mushrooms? So that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because it, America's a strange place. It, it brought in the war on drugs. But in a, in a way, the states have kind of begun to fight back and they have strongly fought back with cannabis medicines. And now it looks like they're fighting back with uh, mushrooms, which is great. Might still take a long time before the American... <laughs> Government changes its view. <laughs> but so America is, as you say, it's such a different place. But they have federal law and they have state law and the That's states right. have a certain amount of autonomy and they can 
they can change laws as they wish. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, that yes, Oakland and Denver voted to make mushrooms legal, which, of course, they were in Britain until 2005, until David Cameron started agitating Tony Blair, and Tony Blair overreacted. But it's an interesting concept. I mean, what do you think, if we were to take a vote in Britain, do you think people would vote for putting mushrooms back? Well, I was interested because the report on psilocybin rescheduling came out yesterday and it was reported in all the newspapers. Mm. Even the Telegraph. Even the front page of the Telegraph. <laughs> and the, the reporting was so positive from The Sun, The Daily Mail, yeah. you know, The Guardian, as you'd expect. So I think we would... I suppose I'm worried I'm living in an echo chamber, but I think we would win the vote on this. No, I'd like to think so. Yeah. But we, of course, we're not allowed the choice. <laughs> well, no. That's no. the problem. And patients don't have a voice in this country. It's terribly sad. But Oregon are voting in November for legalising mushrooms, aren't they? That's looking really positive. That's the whole state. So far, it's been cities, I think, like mm, Oakland yes. and Denver and decriminalisation. Uh, but I think, is it Oakland has decriminalised all psychedelics? Oh, has it? I didn't know that. I oh, think right. so. I, well, I, or maybe all natural ones. And anyway. Possibly. Uh, yes, we'll come back yes, to, yes. Yeah. yeah. So here's a, very, here's a pharmacological question for you. Another anonymous. Do you think DMT would have greater viability for therapy on a mass scale due to its shorter activity? I think this is a very interesting point actually of course we talked about precision medicine and everybody is different and requires a different approach it's very short acting though isn't it mm. dmt but ayahuasca which is essentially dmt no that's um, true that's true yeah it is combined with a yeah. monoamine oxidase and temperature gets in the brain yeah. seems mm. to work we listened to keith abraham didn't we on mm -hmm. the podcast mm -hmm. and that's his drug of choice that seems to work for many people, so that mm. does suggest that... But I, I, my understanding is ayahuasca, you have to keep sort of taking it in the ceremony over a couple of days. Yes. That does suggest, in fact, that, that just a single DMT shot, so to speak, wouldn't do the business. But, but we don't know that yet, and people are... I mean, it's an interesting question, and it's an interesting scientific question, which um, a number of groups, I think, are going to start studying at some point. My own view, just for what it's worth, is that... I, we like psilocybin because it's a four-hour trip and that gives people plenty of time to kind of work through their traumas and make sense of their, um, their insights in the same way as a, an ayahuasca trip lasts a similar period. Whereas I think 10 minutes, it might, you might shake the brain up, but I'm not sure you'll necessarily be in a state to, to do the, as much work as you could if you had longer. But, but time I mean, will tell. I, I suspect that's, that's absolutely right. So for deep trauma, for treatment-resistant depression... I, I just, and I was interested, the BAP did a drug discovery symposium last week and Katia was talking from Compass and she oh, was right. asked about dose effects of, of yeah. psilocybin and she said exactly the same thing, David. She said, I don't think a low dose will give you enough of, of the experience and shake the brain, really, as you nicely said, enough to allow you to really face your demons in the same mm. way mm. that psilocybin at uh, the high dose will do. And I think DMT, it's too short acting as well. But potentially for some other disorders, maybe where the trauma's not quite so deep. There's a lot to learn, isn't there? And this is what, yes. Yeah. 
Good news is you're a lot younger than me, so you might be around to see the results. <laughs> Not that much. <laughs> we need the real youth to work on this. <laughs> no, that is, that is absolutely true. Don't we? So now you've done a lot of talking with veterans. And um, Becky asks, veterans, yeah, these promising results are very exciting, but do you think you might get the same results with people who've suffered chronic effects of childhood trauma? So I'm not the psychiatrist here, and but my understanding is that people with addictions and depression that doesn't respond to, to conventional treatments have got deep-seated emotional trauma from way back in their in their childhood or, or at some point. I mean, I'm absolutely not an expert on this. I'm sort of thinking of people that I know and, and things that I've read. I'm absolutely sure that this medication will work for, for many people who've got very deep-seated childhood trauma. I mean, you remember, Joe, because you, you're one of the great campaigners for the Magic Medicine film. I know you like it and I know you've told people how good it is. But, you know, there it was interesting how it certainly it seemed like the people that did well did have childhood trauma that they dealt with. And, of course, the sad thing was that we couldn't keep giving them the, 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 the treatments because because it does seem like when you've got very deep-seated, long-entrenched depressions that psilocybin can help you get over them, but they, there's something there in the brain that keeps eating away and, and gradually the depression creeps back. And that's actually one of the, one of the questions here about um, what can we do? What can we do about it when the depression does come back? And, I mean, and, and, I mean of course, you know, this, currently there's nothing we can do, is there? Until we change the law, we can't give people more therapy because you can't have everyone in a research programme that the law has tied our hands and it, it's heartbreaking and it's cruel because we know people need more of this medication and we know that uh, you know we saw with the magic medicine film that poor chap is you know he and it's almost worse because he got better because he knows he could be better and his family That's knew right. he could be better and his and then they've seen it all dissipate and uh, yeah it's uh, it's it's kind of you know even at senior levels in universities and you say so you've seen politics of the establishment i mean what's your view as to why we i say recalcitrant why why the government's not wanting to do this when it's it can't harm anyone and it could save so many people i don't understand it i don't understand why it's in schedule one i don't understand why the government isn't supporting research which is you know to their economic advantage it, it none of this makes any sense to me it's and it's cruel when we have a medicine that we know works for people and we cannot enable them to access mm. it. There are two theories of uh, establishment incompetence. One's cock-up and one's conspiracy. And I'm, I'm hoping it's cock-up because that might be a slightly easier one to overturn. So students clearly take a lot of drugs. And, and we, we know this, mm. you know, and that's to a certain extent something that people go to university to experience. And, and you know, yes, we must yes. keep them safe. So I've been talking to the Res Life people at Manchester who've been fantastic about this. And what I want to do is support students with drug and alcohol problems because students can, and gambling and that sort of thing can, can start. And, and to keep students safe and look after them. You know, I think that is our responsibility. If you go so high up in the university, the response in all universities is the same. Our students do not take drugs. And this is just, <laughs> you know, this is just... <laughs> When you usually when I ask students why they go to Manchester because <laughs> got the best drug scene in Pittsburgh. Exactly. 
Oh dear. So that's very unfortunate, I think. Anyway, that's that's another, maybe in a year when we're getting somewhere with this. I mean, the the people have been fantastic at Manchester, the Res Life people. But that, it's that attitude, you know. Yeah, head in the sand, isn't it? Here's a question from Ben Sessa, who I think you know. He's saying, look, one way forward for, for the working group would be to try to sort of have a halfway house where we you have what's called an expanded access mechanism. I think they're trying that in the in the US with MDMA when the trials haven't come to fruition, but but they're letting people with you've got some experience, use it on a sort of compassionate basis. Is that something that the working group might be interested in? I love this question. Uh, it's very smart, Ben. Why could we not do that, David? Why can we not have expert psychiatrists and teams who are allowed to assess patients and prescribe a medicine that they need? So as part of my um, sabbatical, I, I talked to many people and I talked to a clinician in Switzerland who has exactly this permission. He's not young. He's been doing this for years with the support of the Swiss government. And I was very curious about this and really excited to hear. This struck me as a really good idea. This is medical drug for people who need it. And thinking about how long it takes us to get anything from the Home Office Mm. in terms of permission, I said, well, how long does it take? He said, I have to get permission from the government for every patient. And I thought, oh, dear, how long does that take you? Two weeks? You know, that's wonderful, isn't it? So he will assess people. He's an expert. And he can prescribe those people LSD in a, in a you know, um, supervised by a clinician. The Swiss have always been much more sympathetic to innovative pharmacology. And of course, you know, he was a Swiss scientist that invented LSD uh, and discovered what psilocybin was. So, you know, they led the field then and they're still leading now. And it, what's fascinating is that, of course, they haven't come to any harms from doing that. Their society hasn't disintegrated as a result of allowing doctors. You know, what, what possible harm could come to the UK if doctors were allowed to prescribe psilocybin? I mean, it, it's, it's hard to imagine one. I mean, the world would probably be a better place. But it's, 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 what is the fantasy that the Home Office have that somehow doctors are going to be selling this stuff on the streets when you can go and pick the mushrooms <laughs> yourself anyway? I mean, it's truly, it's, truly weird. It's, just astounding and this strikes me you know ben we will we will work towards this i think it's a fantastic idea and i'm sure there are we know there are very experienced clinicians in this area who could do this and you know you give an interview on telly like yesterday and people email you and say i'm really ill how can i get this medicine to not be able to help them it's heartbreaking and when you know you can (laughs) yes yes there's something you know can work for them. So if I could say to them, yes, you can uh, enroll in David Nutt's clinic and he will assess you and you have the potential to have that therapy that you will make you well. And these are people who've been ill for 25 years it's, and not able to live their lives. But even if the government, you know, interested in an economic argument, then the, the cost of depression in the UK is astronomical. That's something we're doing with the working group. Absolutely, isn't it? I mean, it's the largest, depression now is the largest... Burden of disability in England, in the yeah. UK rather. Yeah, it's absolutely shocking. And the, just to go back to the to the animal work just for a minute and the addictive, why people think psychedelics are, are addictive, I, I don't know. But I knew that for 30 years ago when I was doing self-administration studies. So, you right. know, the animal will take a drug, you can train them if they like it. Mm-hmm. No animal will take a psycho- psychedelic. Yeah. 
No, it's uh, it's one of the many many lies that were perpetuated to justify uh, what was a, obviously a political decision to get the drug banned or the drugs banned. So Rosalind McAlpine is saying, do you think the subjective experience is what leads to the transformation, beneficial outcomes, or is it the neurobiological impact? So there you go. You've got mind-brain discontinuity there. So how do you address that one to your students? (laughs) I think it's both. You're the expert here, though, so I'm going to defer to you. But just going back to the veteran, he'd been talking to the Green Berries in America. He knew this was a treatment that he should try and that other things would not work for him. So he went to Holland and took um, truffles, mm-hmm. two doses in a hotel room. So just for- to be, those who don't know, the Dutch, were they're a very, very smart nation. They've always been a way ahead of most countries in terms of rational drug policies. But the really clever thing they did was when the United Nations said you had to ban the psilocybin mushrooms, they banned the mushrooms, but they kept the truffles, the underground part of the mushrooms, legal. (laughs) So it was the only country in the world for a very long time where psilocybin-containing mushroom parts were legal. And now they have quite a big industry, a a lot of therapeutic communities around uh, the use of truffles, don't they? Yeah, 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 absolutely. He went off there, your vet went off to... Did that, you know, we wouldn't recommend this, but did this on his, well, with his girlfriend, Mm -hmm. didn't have any therapy at all and has had no integration you know, so that suggests the pharmacology is pretty powerful of these medicines. That's true. And then, of course, it raises also another interesting question, a question from someone called Joe, who, who says, difference between sort of clinical treatment and a retreat. So in a clinic, I mean, what we do clinically in our current trials, you know, we have two, two therapists, we call them guides, who sit with the person having the experience. They prepare them and then uh, the day before, sit with them during the the trip and then integrate them afterwards and that seems to give very good outcomes but it's a very interesting question whether you get get similarly good outcomes if you did it in a group setting and and one of the things that came clear from talking to your vets and other vets is that for vets going to a, a group therapy with other vets can be very powerful because they've all been through the same trauma they've all been blown up or shot at they they're all suffering the same sort of hyper arousal etc so uh, and they, they're used to working in, you know, in, when you're in the military, you work as a team. Uh, and it's, they kind of like the idea that working as a team to get better. And, heal, and I mean, is that something that you, you know, you sympathise with? I do, yeah. And I think for certain people, the group therapy and probably the retreat setting, maybe going into the jungle to Peru yeah. or somewhere like that. We, we heard from Keith Abraham, the Heroic Hearts chap, and Jesse Gould. Um, that clearly worked for them. And I, I think for for some people, that will be the way that psychedelics will sort of reach them and, and heal them. Whereas for other people, they want all the support in the laboratory or in the, you know, in the clinic. And maybe they want to be just a one to one. So, again, it's it's people are different, but it certainly strikes me that there are two sort of models here. Mm. And the retreat setting and the group setting. I mean, you, I, I know you interviewed the chap who'd made the film From Shock to Awe. Yes, yeah, a remarkable film. If remarkable. you've not seen that film, you must see it. It is it's a brilliant film on the consequences of basically military trauma and how you can heal it, both with actually, mostly with ayahuasca, but there's a very, very telling intervention on, on the female combatants with MDMA as well. Yeah. 
Sorry, I interrupted you. Carry on. No, that's absolutely right, David. That was that's a fantastic. Yeah. So to all the listeners, that's really a very very important film to see. I think, and it's wonderful. One of the the, the combatants, his wife, and and she takes MDMA, and that mm. works really well for her. But she's on her own actually. You know, with with that's right. Um, it was a private. That was individual therapy. Yeah. So mm. for her that worked, but for him it was being with his combat friends and other veterans and having that camaraderie over the weekend uh, that that seemed to work so well for them so here's an interesting question that the um the working group might want to think about it says Sheila Madonna to what extent are the current or planned studies on drug resistant depression looking into the use of psilocybin instead of standard antidepressants are these looking at using psilocybin or psychedelics to help people switch medicines now that's quite a technical question really and I'll, I'll preface you know my, my question to you by saying one of the challenges we have is that when people are on particularly serotonergic ssri type antidepressants psilocybin doesn't work it seems like there's a desensitization of the receptor you know that's a problem for us because we have to get them off the ssri before the psilocybin will work but it's an interesting thought whether you could use psilocybin somehow to help people get off them. I don't know. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, you're much more of an expert on this. I know you have to be off traditional antidepressants, don't mm-hmm. you, for quite maybe a couple of weeks before you can. And pharmacologically, that makes perfect sense. You know, the system will be downregulated, I think, because you've upped serotonin levels, haven't That's you? That's right, yeah. Here's another, probably more for me than you, Cillian McDowell, do we know what factors predict or, or are important in experiencing the benefits of psychedelics? Are there any factors to consider that may attenuate the benefits? So the answer is that we know a little bit. I mean, it's not been enormously researched because, of course, there aren't, you know, there's less than 100 people in out-reported clinical trials with psychedelics at present. So we, we can't do a, a very sophisticated analysis of of different personality types or different genetic variants, etc. Uh, what we do know is that having a, a big experience, often what's called a breakthrough experience, where people see things in a very different way, that often that does seem to be associated with a good outcome, and, and that makes sense because what psychedelics do is they allow you, they allow your brain to sort of escape from its current ways of thinking, and therefore and uh, and therefore help you find new ways of thinking and overcome your repetitive ruminations about depression or about trauma. Are there fact, the factors that attenuate the benefits? In our hands, the, the one thing that was negative in terms of outcome was anxiety. Uh, anxiety during the experience or before. And that's, we put a lot of effort into reassuring people that it is safe. And in fact, we haven't had any bad trips. But uh, if people are very anxious and worrying about that, then they, they're not in as good a state to deal with the experience as if they weren't. So that's the one, that's the one issue. And in fact, that's what's, what's interesting about that. And this is where, you, where, where you coming into drug science has actually opened my eyes a bit. Because of our experience of anxiety being a negative predictor in the depression trials, I was always a bit worried about ayahuasca in PTSD because I thought, well, PTSD is an anxiety disorder. But it turns out that, you know, we were behind the curve because your vets have gone off and they've, they've done the ayahuasca and they've done well. Now, there are some explanations for that. I mean, your vets are very, very tough people. Yes, yeah. They're traumatised, but they're not anxious. So when you've had, you know, you've been blown up and shot at, you know, you've, um, 
a psychedelic trip can probably see that as being a rather less threatening than someone who's had a relatively sheltered life. So it might be that other more normal anxiety is not good, but your your very traumatized vets are, are rather more resistant to, to anxiety, I don't know. You're absolutely right. These are really tough people, aren't they? And and one of the veterans said to me, you know, I jump out of planes for a living and I love doing it. I mean, <laughs> that yes. is certainly not my idea of fun. No, quite, quite. You know, so they're very, yes, I think they're not anxious. They're traumatised, for yeah. sure, the things that have happened. to. And I think there's a lot of guilt, isn't there, the things you've done in the course of your that duty. That too, that too, Horrible. Yes. I've always been sceptical of the concept of PTSD as a anxiety disorder. I've always thought there's, there are some anomalies there. It's, it's not a, it's not like a worry disorder. It's not like people with GAD who are worrying about the phone bill and worrying about where someone is and projecting scary things onto any, no. anything that happens. It's a, this sort of hypervigilance, isn't it? That's yes. how you described it to me. And not being able to be in public spaces and all that sort of thing, and then asleep, it's sleep as well, and nightmares. And, yes. But it's not, I, you're absolutely right. It's not anxiety as we would think of it. It's not like exam nerves, is no, it? No, it's nothing like that. Um, but I've been to some of these integration sessions to learn as much as I can about the psychedelic experience. And it strikes me that anxiety does provide a very negative experience for people and what worries me is that people there seems to be this desire to repeat the experience that that you know it must be a good thing for you rather than maybe having a bad experience as you would with anything and Mm. then think right well perhaps I won't do that again and the anxiety certainly seems to be something that um people feel they should work through. To my mind, it is one of the critical questions in understanding the nature of the therapy, the psychological uh, aspects of the therapy. And then finally, Joe, we've uh, it's got an interesting question. This one is a basic request, really, rather than a question. Uh, Joe T says, do you not think you need some more patience on your group? I think you've got a vet or two, but what about having some patients with other disorders like depression and anorexia? She's absolutely right. And something she's probably spotted is we don't have any women patients, you know, experts by experience on the group either. The anorexia trial is planned, isn't it, for Imperial? That will, Meg, I talked to Meg, it'll be starting. That's an enormously exciting study, I think. Oh, yeah. And also while we're talking about that... um, since she's now working for you uh, on this Women in Psychedelics group, tell us about this group. <laughs> oh, that's so, so exciting, really. Well, we had our first meeting last week. Yes. yes. Um, of course, it came to our attention that women were underrepresented at the launch. We have a fair few women on the committee, and I think yeah. your drug science committee is potentially more women slightly than, than men. Yes, I think we um, but it, it will be very important to represent women on this group. So we have, you know, we have a few in the committee. Chloe Sakal, she's sort of spearheading this. We're working on this together. Um, and we are we're planning an event in October. So an online women in psychedelic. I mean, I there's lots, there's so many unknowns. You know, what about premenstrual disorders? Perhaps psychedelics could have an, an impact there. So that I think there are female disorders that are, are poorly treated and we don't know if there's going to be some sort of potential. Well, the good thing then is, Joe, you'll have a lot to come and talk to me about at some future date. 
I want to say thank you very much now for it's been a, been a great conversation. Thank you for all of those who sent in their questions. And all I need to do now is wish you and the working group every success. I'm sure under your leadership it will achieve your goals. Thank well, thank you very, you much, very much. It's been an absolute pleasure, David. We will be doing everything we can and we will be working very, very hard to enable patients to, to access this and to understand psychedelic medicine better. Thank you, Joe. Been a pleasure. Well, uh, she's got a lot to do, but uh, I think you'll agree with me that if anyone's going to drive change in psychedelic policy in Britain, I think Joe Neal is your person. She's a very dynamic and but also very talented uh, uh, academic who's well connected to the real world as well as the uh, ivory towers. So thanks to Joe for uh, sharing with me the, the questions and answers. Uh, thanks to you for listening. Let me remind you that um, the way we produce these podcasts is uh, largely dependent on your support. So if you enjoy them, please share with your friends and colleagues their, their value but also try to sign up to become a drug science community member, a very important part of the resource that drug science needs to continue this pioneering work, not just in the field of psychedelics, but in the field of drug policy worldwide. So if you can, do join and support us. Thank you very much. <laughs>